Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host and joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, we're coming down close to the wire here on election day. How are you doing? Uh, good. It's uh, great to be coming down to the wire in an election season and not having to actually do anything except look into it. And this is the first time since 2012 I haven't been actively working on a campaign. So that's a weird feeling, but, you know, a good, a good feeling and a lot less stressful feeling. So ni- nice to just uh, enjoy the campaign from the, uh, you know, active observer encourager role rather than frantic campaign staffer role. Well, we're going to do a little time traveling in this episode. Most of what you're going to hear today, we actually did earlier this afternoon where we talked about the down ballot races and sort of built on our discussion from last week about the trends that we've seen in Democratic messaging and some of the challenges that they've been facing on the trail in clarifying their message versus the Republican message. Um, So you're going to hear that in the second part of this episode. But tonight, Sunday night, was also the final debate between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams, and so we wanted to jump in here right at the front and give a little bit of a rapid reaction. And Luke, we'll, we'll start there. I think the thing that stood out to me the most was the format of this debate hosted by WSB was a lot different than the one that we saw hosted by the Atlanta Press Club and GPB. Um, in their last debate, most notably two things. One, the Libertarian candidate wasn't there, which gave both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp a lot more room to just lay their message out there and lay the contrast between the two of them out there. But then the second thing that I really liked was the format of this debate felt a lot more open where they would give each candidate a question. They'd give them what felt like a minute or so to respond and then let them go back and forth for like three or four minutes at a time. And so I thought it was really clarifying to kind of hand the debate over to Governor Kemp and and Ms. Abrams and just let them talk and let them contrast with each other the way that they wanted to. Um, Because I felt like in the, you know, the byproduct of that was that you didn't hit as many issues tonight, but I thought they hit on a few of the most important ones where they have some of the strongest contrast between the two of them. And so you just got a better sense of like where each of them stood and what the choice and the stakes of that choice are for Georgians in this election. You know, I really like the Loudermilk Young debates. I'm usually talking about how much I like that format, but I, I think this worked much better for these two candidates. And I think it's just having that extra time, and maybe that's what uh, the Loudermilk Young Atlanta Press Club debates need to do and just give a little more space. Uh, because while it is good to hit a lot of topics and to kind of get people's opinions on all of them, this one especially in this race, I think was so much better because it gave Abrams and Kemp a lot more space to talk about what they really cared about and gave them the time to really dive deep into what the differences between the two of these candidates are and their you know philosophies. And I think as I've been begging <laughs> and in the past uh, today in the earlier parts of this episode, I begged Abrams finally really got to articulate her fire Kemp message and why she thought she would be a better governor than Brian Kemp and what he did wrong and what he should be held accountable for. And I think it was way more effective. And both of them were way more comfortable. Like, I I actually think Brian Kemp also came out way better in this debate and really got to articulate his vision and the things that he thought he did well. And so I really hope in the future that WSB... Uh, gets to to host debates and keeps a similar format because, like you said, just letting them talk, I thought was really good. And and they both they they were both very respectful of each other. I thought, and you know, they they threw some barbs at each other, but I think they they took them very professionally and you know didn't yell over each other or anything like that. And I I, I honestly think they both came off better from this debate. And it's rare that I say that, but I I think they both deserve a lot of credit for. Uh, doing things better than they did in the last debate. What topics in this debate stood out to you? I think for me, the big one was the economy for Governor Kemp. I think he did really well in talking about that, which is like unsurprising because, uh, you know, in the past, <laughs> other parts of this episode, I talk about uh, how effective he is on that messaging and, and just how he handled COVID and trying to hit abrams on how he perceives she would handle covid uh that really stood out to me and then the 
other, you know, Abrams, I thought was really good on expressing what her different priorities would be as governor and how that affected a lot of different issues. She was able to do a lot better this time in expressing like not only that she would be different, but why what Kemp did was bad. Because a lot of times, and I think this really just had to do with the limited amount of time uh, she had to talk. Abrams would get to, you know, get to the part where it was like, this is why I think my ideas are better. But she never really got to drill down into why what Kemp is doing is so bad. And this time I think she got to do that. And I think it helped her significantly. And she got more time to point out where she thought that uh, Kemp was mischaracterizing her record. Yeah, I think the one for me was on guns. I thought that Stacey Abrams finally got the opportunity to draw a contrast between her and Kemp on the main issue that I think most people think about with guns is the loss of life involved, how many people have died and been injured in shootings, and how Republicans basically have no answer for that. Um, you know, Governor Kemp got lost a little bit in the details of like, did law enforcement support his concealed carry bill or not, or his constitutional carry bill or not? Were they at the bill signing or not? What is the back, the details of the background checks and state and federal law and all this stuff? And at one point, Abrams turned around and, and just said, you know, the thing that bothers me the most is how much you minimize the loss of life caused by gun violence and all of and the increases in gun violence that have happened on your watch as governor. And that I think was like that, I think, has been the hardest thing on guns for me to understand for. And I think that the message that Democrats have struggled a little bit to get to cross, get across is that at times it feels like everybody's a little bit sort of prisoner to the Second Amendment and not wanting to be very direct about saying guns are the problem. I thought Abrams's line that she's you know aiming to protect second the Second Amendment and second graders is a really, really good one and articulated what Democrats position should be very well this time. And she said that last time, but I don't know. It just came off better this time, probably because it didn't feel so rushed. Well, that uh, yeah, and that's been a standard line for her, but I think for her to actually get in and explain what that um, means, you know, cause <laughs> yeah. Cause like, you know, I want to protect the second amendment and second graders feels like a little bit of a political line to me, at least at my, well, my I, I agree that it self. is. It's just, I like it. <laughs> I, I um, but I'm a sucker for alliteration. Yeah. But I, but I think to, to, have you know sort of the governor get lost in all these details and then turn around and be like but do you care about all the lives that are lost that's where the contrast felt strongest to me and that's where i felt like she she might have gained some ground on that um you know and i did think that the the format of the debate and and this is the part of the debate where i thought she really excelled was having room to speak let her continue to go at camp and go at camp and go at camp and put him a little bit on the defensive and it felt like he was a little bit more sort of explaining and, you know, he was incredibly defensive on abortion. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I thought that that, you know, she might've gained some ground on that one. And if this is the one, you know, closest to the election, we've got early voting already going on. Um, you know, that it may be meaningful in a way that other debates and other events in this campaign don't really feel like they've been meaningful in terms of dialing support towards her. I think it came at a good time because if you're actually genuinely undecided in this race, then like you probably watch this debate because it's, it's so close to the actual election day. I, I just I think the timing of it was good. And it was probably easier for people to watch this one compared to the Atlanta Press Club debate. And just to, to return um, to what I mentioned a minute ago is just like Kemp was surprisingly defensive on abortion, which is strange to me because that is something he's usually seemed pretty comfortable talking about. And maybe he was just, you know, having a mental kerfluffle like we all have. I've had many on this show, uh, but he just seemed like he got really lost in his head trying to explain the fact that people have differing opinions on abortion, <laughs> which is like a very adorable thing to talk about. And, and I feel like everyone understands that. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Governor Kemp, everyone has a different opinion on abortion. That's why it's one of the most controversial uh, topics in uh, in the country, but it's just like he he just 
seemed very nervous at talking about it and usually he doesn't and, and I thought that was interesting because I think because Abrams actually very effectively nailed him down on something which is the fact that he got asked the question if the legislature passed a, a further abortion restriction what would you do and he just wouldn't really answer it and that's it's pretty rare from Kemp. He usually has a, a pretty good answer for things, I feel like, even if it's, you know, over an oversimplification or um, it, it just rarely appears like a dodge. And this actually appeared like a dodge, which is rare for him. Um, and she I, I thought uh, Leaguer Abrams was very good at just pointing out that he did not answer this question, which points pretty clearly to me and her and probably everybody listening that yeah we all know that if the legislature passed a complete ban of abortion like brian kemp is going to sign that and i think that was one of the clearest contrasts between her and him that she could point out and i i, I just thought she did really well on that one also it's just like a flat-out lie for the governor to suggest that he's a sort of a prisoner of the legislature that if he does not want a bill to be considered he has immense authority to use leverage against lawmakers to have them not consider a bill that he doesn't want considered. Um, and if he, you know, fails in that, but it, they pass a policy that he doesn't want, he has the veto pen. So like to sort of throw your hands up and be like, Oh, well, you know, the legislature can do whatever they want. Like that was just like total bullshit. And I, I hope people see through that. Yeah, me too. I guess the last thing I would say is, um, even if it doesn't change anything, I do appreciate the fact that we had this debate. You know, I, I'm happy I watched it because I was considering not because I was so frustrated with the last one. And it was good to see Abrams kind of back on her better footing and really articulating what she's fighting for and what she thinks Georgia can do differently under her leadership. Because I just feel like that was been so missing or at least lost in the noise of this cycle and lost in the, the bag you know, vibes, I guess, of this election. And so it was nice to like be like, oh, yeah, Democrats, we got some good ideas. <laughs> There's things that we should do. Uh, so that that was good. Um, good to get to see that. And I, I still think, though, my big takeaway from this is. It's going to be really important for Democrats to watch what the outcome of this election is and try to learn some lessons from it. Cause I, I think unfortunately if Abrams doesn't do well and, and loses worse than she did in 18 and worse than some Democrats have, and you know, over this past decade, I think that's a real reckoning for the party that we really need to get a good economic message that's simple because, man, whether you think he's right or wrong, Kemp has a good, quick, easy to understand message on the economy, which is like, that's what I put first. I think it's super important because I because because Kemp's message is is very simple. It is this. I think good jobs and a good economy will work out every other problem we have. And if we have good jobs, that's that's the priority. That's always my priority. And Democrats have basically, uh, you know, adopted a message that is good jobs and a good economy should not always be first in every single circumstance. And here are some circumstances where I think that logic takes us down a bad road. And I just think most Georgians, they find Kemp's message easier to understand and easier to attach to and easier to be sympathetic with because there's so much explaining that has to go on with the Democratic message and so I, I think if Abrams loses, we're going to need as a party to figure out a message that says we care about the economy and we care about people and our plan for the economy is going to help people more because I, I think unfortunately right now it's super easy to do what Kemp does so effectively, which is cast Democrats as like, look, you might think they're nicer. You might think they're going to care about you more on some niche issues, but they're going to crash the economy and nobody's going to have a job. So like all that stuff's not going to matter. And we can't just keep falling into that trap because I feel like we fall, we've been falling into that trap for a really long time, both in Georgia and nationally. And so that that's my biggest takeaway from this debate, win or lose for Abrams. Well, and I will plug that even 
somewhat missing from tonight's debate was my frequent focus on reducing costs. And the the web the White House had a good uh, a good tweet today out of the White House. Joe Biden's Twitter fingers are working great lately. Um, that said Republicans would raise costs to uh, support wealthy campaign donors. And they would raise your costs by raising what you pay on student loans, raising what you pay on health care, raising what you pay on prescriptions. Uh, And Democrats would fight against that and lower costs for you. And I think that clear contrast, you know, they got into it a little bit on housing and a little bit on health care. But I think just a flat out declaration, Democrats will lower costs for you. We will fight every day to do that in Atlanta and in Washington. You know, that's the that's the the driving home of that one thing that I think would have been beneficial for all of the Democratic candidates to have focused on more in this cycle. Yeah, I agree. Well, with that, let's uh, talk about other Democrats that are running in this uh, cycle. Let's get to our discussion from earlier today on down ballot races. Blast from the past. Today, we're going to talk about the down ballot races, particularly the races for attorney general, secretary of state and Lieutenant Governor. Um, These, I think, are probably the most interesting of the down-ballot races. There are also competitive races for insurance commissioner, state school superintendent, and labor commissioner. Um, I think I'm getting all of them there. Um, And then we're really only going to have one competitive congressional race down in the southwest corner of the state where Sanford Bishop is facing probably his closest challenge. He's been in Congress now for about 30 years or so. Um, this will be one of the more competitive races that he's faced, but because of redistricting the competitive races that we had in the sixth and seventh districts around Metro Atlanta, those have been uh, Republicans uh, set up both of those as safe seats, one safe Democratic seat up in the seventh northeast of Atlanta and one uh, relatively safe Republican seat, at least safe for now in the uh, northwestern part of the city. Um, so there's a lot less drama on the congressional front. Um, But some of these down-ballot races, Luke, are pretty interesting. And I think to dive in here first on Attorney General, um, this one has, I think, the most interesting sort of theoretical question about how a Attorney General approaches the office and approaches sort of their responsibilities of that job. And this has come up uh, most frequently in the context of abortion. And State Senator Jen Jordan is the Democratic nominee for Attorney General she has said repeatedly that she would not defend the state's abortion ban in court. Um, she would not be the state's lawyer doing that. And she says that she believes that that's the right position because she believes the law to be unconstitutional at the state level, that it's a violation of privacy protections provided by the state constitution. Uh, but her opponent, Republican Chris Carr, who's the incumbent attorney general, has really lambasted her for that view and said that she is sort of in dereliction of duty of the office of attorney general over her personal views by refusing to defend the state's position in court. Luke, you're, I think, uh, definitely more well positioned to answer this question than I am on this podcast. But what do you think about this sort of theoretical difference between the two? And do you find it compelling what uh, Senator Jordan says when she says that, uh, you know, because she thinks it's unconstitutional on the state level, she is in the right to not defend the state's position in court, even as the state's top lawyer. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting debate. I I, <laughs> I have a bit of a weird perspective on this because I, I work with uh, Mike Bowers, who was Georgia's attorney general from 1981 to 1997. So uh, I have a you know unique exposure to the attorney general's office and have heard a lot uh, from Mike on his perspective. My my perspective. Uh, is actually uh, surprisingly similar to his. Uh, you know, he's he's a pretty conservative guy, but his his view is that you know the Georgia Attorney General is an independent office, and that if the governor or the legislature is doing something unconstitutional, then it's the Attorney General's job to stop that, and that um, you know that that is the role that they play. I think I think that's a high bar to meet, and I I, I think you know if 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 an Attorney General sees a state official doing something illegal or doing something unconstitutional, it is their job to step in and to stop that. I think you have to meet a pretty high bar uh, for that to, you know, to, to take on that role. And I, I, you know, so, so that is to say, I would say about 98% of the time, 99.9% of the time you as attorney general, you should defend the laws of the state, even if you disagree with them um, because that is, 
the role in the system. As attorney general, if you come across a law that you feel like conflicts with the Constitution, then I believe you should say that and, you know, challenge it in, in court. That would be your role because there are plenty of times that I could imagine where the legislature would think of a law and push it through even if it was the legal community opinion that that law was unconstitutional there is no like magic thing that happens you know in a legislature if you pass a law that's unconstitutional that prevents you from passing it and so i think that is an actual role that the attorney general should play in this specific circumstance it's very interesting because jen jurgen is is pursuing a novel legal argument and you know putting out her position that you know i believe i've read the case law and I think that this law should be challenged under the Georgia Constitution, making this specific argument. And what's different about a lot of situations uh, where attorney generals in other states have gone against the legislature's wishes is, you know, it's something that has kind of explicitly been said that is unconstitutional. Here it's a novel argument. I still think that's that's the role. I, I, I think that's part of the role and I feel less conflicted about this being something inappropriate because of the fact that, of, of two things. One, Jen Jurgen is campaigning on the fact that this is how she sees the constitution. I think this is good for the electorate and that, you know, she's being a hundred percent clear that that's what she thinks and that's what she's going to pursue. So there's no sort of, you know, hiding the ball, people getting surprised if she won, if she did this and then two, um, you know, there's checks and balances in the American legal system. Uh, we, we've seen that those have been pretty effective uh, when people try to uh, pursue unorthodox claims. Because my only concern with an attorney general doing this is if an attorney general started to just challenge things that were obviously not unconstitutional or illegal and just kind of create fake controversies and cases... Uh, I, I don't think there will be a lot of time in the Georgia legal system, especially for an attorney general who did that. Uh, but I definitely don't think that's what, what Senator Juergen is advocating for here. I think there is de there's definitely a basis in Georgia case law that would give you a legitimate claim to this argument. And the last thing I'll say, because I've been talking way too long, I 100% disagree with how Chris Carr characterized it which is basically being the government's lawyer and supporting the government in every case. Uh, that, you know, that's not the case. We've, you know, again, <laughs> hear a lot about it because I work with the guy. But like, you know, when, when um, Mike Bowers was attorney general, he sued the governor twice. Um, and, and so that, that's definitely a role for attorney generals in Georgia and across the country to be an independent check on um, the governor, on the other executive uh you know, elected officers. It's supposed to be an independent constitutional officer and not be beholden to the rest of the executive. And I, I think that's that's better that the SIPs is made that way because there are times where the governor is doing something illegal or unconstitutional and you need somebody there to say you can't do that. And that's what the attorney general is supposed to do. Now, this is interesting intellectually, but this is not like some one weird trick where Democrats are going to undo the abortion ban by electing Jen Jordan to be attorney general, right? Like if Jen Jordan was to be elected attorney general and she was to de decline to defend the state's position in this lawsuit, the state would appoint somebody else that would be willing and probably excited to defend the state's position and defend this law in court, right? Yeah, that's my understanding. I know that's exactly what happens on the federal level. I have not been exposed uh, personally to that scenario where you have um, the Georgia Attorney General uh, not wanting or not feeling like they can defend a law. So I don't know if there's something specific to Georgia that I am missing uh, that would keep them from doing that. But there's definitely nothing I'm aware of that would prevent the legislature for you know to to find outside counsel to to handle a case if the attorney general declined to. Yeah. And so ultimately, you know, you know, an, an attorney general Jordan would have her position. It would still be up to state courts and ultimately the state Supreme court to hear out 
the challenge to the state's abortion ban that's already in process and these these privacy arguments are already being brought forward in court. Um, and so ultimately, this is not, you know, sort of a backdoor way for Democrats to stop the abortion ban, which Democrats may be disappointed in. Um, but these arguments are still going to be heard out in court and, and you know, the state Supreme Court's going to decide based on <clears throat> their view of the state constitution and, and the state's going to have their opportunity to make their arguments in favor of the law. One thing, though, that I think is sort of politically relevant here, Luke, is this is a sort of obvious uh, issue by which Democrats can try to push back on Republicans on the issue of abortion in a way that doesn't feel awkward and in a way that feels relevant to the race that that people are in. And and so I'm curious, Luke, do you think that that matters politically? Because like it's it's given Jen Jordan a pretty clear platform to say that she is the one who will protect reproductive rights and, and women's rights in Georgia. And Chris Carr, you know, doesn't really in the debate, I remember him saying, you know, kind of downplaying what the most negative potential outcomes from the law would be that women wouldn't be prosecuted under this abortion ban. And that is another thing that's up for legal debate. <clears throat> but it's given Jen Jordan a pretty clean platform to be the uh, protector of abortion rights in Georgia. Do you think that that matters just sort of on pure politics versus the, the legal uh, debating that's gone on? I, I wish it mattered more. I also, <laughs> I, I, I really liked how Jen Jurgen has approached this race. And uh, while she hasn't gone as close to saying fire Chris Carr as I wish everyone would <laughs> regarding their opponents, uh, she definitely does have, I think, one of the better referendum messages. And I, I think this is just a tragedy of the Georgia political bandwidth uh, for, you know, attention on races because Jen Jurgen demonstrating a far more independent attorney general, one who advocates for people more than advocating for the government. And I, I really see that's what the attorney general is supposed to do, where Chris Carr articulated pretty forcefully that the role of the attorney general is to defend the, the state of Georgia, which is true a lot of times. But it's not true all the time. And so I, I, I wish that debate mattered more. And I wish um, there, was, there was just more attention paid to it. Uh, the other thing that I, I, I think is highlighted by the way both of them approached uh, this debate is just, you know, Chris Carr not being honest about what the potential repercussions of the, the bill are, because the, the truth of the matter is he does not control as you know the attorney general does not control what district attorneys do. And ultimately, if anyone gets prosecuted under the heartbeat bill, whether it's a doctor or a woman receiving an abortion, it is going to come up, you know, it, it really just comes down to what is one district attorney and any of the, you know, judicial circuits in Georgia is willing to do because that's all it takes is one district attorney thinking that I, I you know, I, I've looked at this law. I believe that I, as a prosecutor, have the ability to prosecute people for these offenses and they bring the charges and the chips fall where they may uh, with that. There's nothing Chris Carr can really do about that. And even if that's not his read on that legislation, uh, that, that is the, the, truthful thing is that it just it just takes one da to to do that when he tried to have it <clears throat> he tried to have it both ways on prosecutorial discretion too because he was very critical of democratic um district attorneys that he says are too soft on crime and have refused to to prosecute um crimes in their judicial circuits um but then he seemed to feel like he could comfortably speak for all district attorneys and uh, downplaying and just dismissing the claims that some district attorney could use the personhood provisions of the bill to, you know, for instance, charge a woman with murder or charge a woman with homicide if she is participating in and re receives an abortion and, and participates in that act. Um, you know, he, he seemed to want to just have it both ways, depending on his own political views there. I agree. <laughs> Let's move on to the Secretary of State's race. And this one is is another it's a particularly challenging one for Democrats. And we've talked about before how the incumbent Republican Brad Raffensperger, he became nationally famous as one of the few Republicans willing to push back against 
very personal, very direct pressure from Donald Trump in his effort to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election, particularly in Georgia. And he has gotten a lot of credibility publicly, uh, some from Democrats, some from more moderate voters who may be less affiliated with both parties. Um, and he he did not really <clears throat> suffer the political wrath of the Republican Party and the Republican base because he t- turns out he won that primary fairly easily. Um, that's created, I think, a really uphill battle for Democratic nominee B. Wynn, who has, I think, made persuasive and very true arguments about the challenges of voting in the state. She's tried to provide more context and make clear that even though you have record turnout numbers. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't barriers to voting in this state. And it doesn't mean that because uh, a lot of individual voters and a lot of organizations that have been funded to help people overcome barriers to voting, that that doesn't make those barriers right. And that the increased turnout that we're seeing is not just evidence that there are no problems at all. I still think, though, that that message has fallen somewhat flat, given that Raffensperger is somebody who is known for, you know, dismissing Trump's uh, rigged election claims. And he's done a good job, I think, sidestepping. He's he's done a good job politically, sort of like stepping into some issues, like he says that there needs to be additional legislation to keep non-citizens from voting, even though that's not a problem. But then the more polarizing things like voter challenges, which are disruptive and are clearly targeted at certain kinds of voters, he just got up on stage in that debate and uh, said he'd be willing to accept changes. And so he's just, I think, done a deft job kind of stepping between these issues and not becoming a polarizing uh, figurehead for all of the problems with elections. And I think that that's made B. Wynn's task in this race quite difficult. Um, what did you think about that debate, Luke, and about the challenges that face B. Win in her fire Brad Raffensperger message? Yeah, I, I think I agree with most of what you said. I think the biggest thing I would articulate is B. Win's entire message against Brad Raffensperger, and my, in, you know, and my the things that I have seen is based off of his conduct towards voting rights. And while it is definitely true that Brad Raffensperger has support, you know, supported just about every bill that has passed that makes it harder to vote in Georgia, he has also overseen dramatic increases in voting in Georgia. And I, I will say, since he became... Secretary of State versus Brian Kemp, it is easier to vote in Georgia. In my personal experience, it's been a lot faster and a lot smoother. And I feel like the count happens a lot faster and smoother on election nights. And while it's definitely harder for some targeted populations to vote, I think a lot of Georgians have seen that it's easier to vote for them. And so it's really difficult when you're B-Win to explain how you know, Brad Raffensperger's policies suppress the vote. Whereas if you, you know, log into Georgia votes or you listen to the news, all you hear is that there's record turnout in Georgia. Because I mean, mathematically speaking, that is a fact. Like it is higher than it's ever been, um, you know, election after election. And so it's just, it's just hard to convince people that Brad Raffensperger is responsible for some horrible voter suppression when, you know, the bill that B when has the most ammunition on is one that he didn't vote for because he was secretary of state at the time. And the fact that he stood up to Trump and didn't let Trump steal the election from the people of Georgia, which of course is his constitutional legal duty, but he still did do it. And so he gets credit for that. And so I think, I think it's just, it's really hard to paint him as some, you know, ballot stealing, ballot suppressing guy when, most of the signals that your casual voter sees shows that Brad Raffensperger is defending democracy. And that just makes it very difficult to be successful on that message. And I think one of the the best illustrations of this is uh, the, I'm pretty sure it's the most recent 
UGA AJC polls from October 7th, 2022. So they asked a question that says, quote, in 2021, the Georgia legislature made some changes to the way citizens cast ballots. Do you support or oppose requiring voters to include a copy of their photo ID or other documentation in order to cast an absentee ballot by mail? I mean, this is one of the things that earlier in her campaign, B. Win and all the Democrats were just, you know, screaming about and say how horrible it is and really trying to demonize the republicans based off of that well 67.7 percent of voters approve of that position and only 28.9 oppose it and so when you're when you're campaigning against someone and the primary basis of that campaign is i think brad raffensperger's policies restrict the ability of georgians to vote it's difficult to win when most people kind of agree with the restrictions that Brad Raffensperger is p- proposing. And like I mentioned, being a casual voter, like your voting experience is probably better since Brad Raffensperger took over. And so they're just not feeling the suppression that the voters that B is talking about feel. And I think that just makes it really, really hard to be successful in a campaign. And I think that was somewhat played out a little bit in the question that she asked Brad Raffensperger at the debate, which was basically that in 2018, Brad Raffensperger wanted to talk about how his anti-abortion views. He touted endorsements from right-wing groups that were anti-abortion. And in 2022, he doesn't want to talk about that. Um, And so she tried to sort of uh, frame him, try to drive up the negativity people might feel towards him over his abortion views, even though that really has very, very little, if nothing to do with the job. Um, you know, she did not invoke any sort of tie in to the role of secretary of state in her question. And I thought it was interesting that he did in his response. Um, but yeah, so I, so I think overall, I think she's just tried to use this as another issue to try to, drive up negative views of Brad Raffensperger, but it's a demonstration of how far she has to reach given that the core issues around the the job are not ones in which Brad looks back bad enough for that to be a strong fire Brad Raffensperger message. Yeah, I, I just think that's a, a big difficulty here. And it, it's tricky because on the one hand, Republicans are masters at taking national issues that are completely irrelevant to a you know position and winging on them. I mean, you know, it's kind of infamous, the ability of, you know, people running for county commissioner and dog catcher to make the race about abortion somehow and be successful on their side. But it seems, you know, we haven't, I, I, don't, I don't think they're the, I think the problem here is, you know, on the one hand, you and I are both wonks. We love policy and we would thoroughly enjoy this debate if it had been, an hour instead of 30 minutes and all they talked about were things that were like incredibly relevant to the secretary of state's office like the administration of voting and the administrative of like you know, administration of licensing and all the wonky stuff the secretary of state does uh but nobody cares about that and i think the other issue that democrats up and down the ballot are facing is that there are a lot of voters who are pro-life, that is the number one basis for their voting decision. And I think for a lot of pro-choice voters who, you know, like Democrats' position on that, they're, they're, the economy is more important to them. And right now, unfortunately, the Republicans have the advantage on that issue and have, historically, have the advantage on that issue. And I think that just makes it very hard for Democrats to turn a Secretary of State's race to a referendum on abortion because that is not the primary policy that these voters are going to make their decision on. And so I'm sure that we're going to pick up some people uh, because of the change in Roe versus Wade. But I, I don't think as of right now, that is uh, that is enough voters' number one policy issue for us to be successful in the same way that Republicans historically have been because they have those one, you know, issue, they have those single issue voters. So, yeah, I think that that, you know, and the polling, I think, reflects the uphill battle that B win faces. And you might have the numbers in front of you in that. I have it. The, give, yeah, give me one. In second. the earlier polls, she was down by 20 points 
and that the race looked basically out of reach. And, and Luke, I know you saw the other numbers from the more recent poll where it was a little closer. Yeah. So that October poll, I mean, <laughs> a little closer. It's, it's, uh, it is, it is now 47.9 for Raffensburger, 33.9 for B win. So closer, sure, but that's still very, very big gap. What's interesting though is, I mean, there is still 11.8 percent of voters who are undecided, and Metz, who's the Libertarian candidate, is getting 6.3 percent. I, I just, I think that has to be high. Uh, but maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's actually what he's gonna get. But I, I, I'm, I'm surprised by that number. I'll leave it at that. Well, for, for what it's worth, and I don't really want to give Ted Metz any oxygen because I thought he was even worse than Shane Hazel from our, our last libertarian from our last debate discussion. He was the one who stood there and basically said there were uh, grave irregularities with the election and tried to tag Raffensperger with having um, allowed those to go through, insinuating that, uh, and I don't remember, I don't think he said the election was outright stolen, but he was the only one that was a backer of the idea that there were these grave irregularities. And, you know, 6%, maybe there are that that group of people who still think the election was stolen from Trump who uh, have found their champion in Ted Metz. Uh, yeah, that's very you know, fair. That, that's, that's you're probably, I think you're right on that. Um, I, now I'm, that, you know, that could be relevant in forcing this race into a runoff because you would think Raffensperger should be smooth sailing to get above 50%. Um, in some ways, I guess, you know, while probably bad for democracy, it might be a small help to be win if she gets a little bit more time to, uh, fight this out a little bit longer in a runoff. But, um, you know, that, that was all I that was all I thought also of Ted Metz's entire contribution to that debate. It yeah, wasn't and, a great one. Yeah. And you know, the libertarians, I, I think it's really interesting uh, because I feel like all the libertarians this cycle have taken very different approaches. Cause typically I, I you know, at least from, from my watching the libertarians usually are just kind of pushing a very traditional uh, libertarian message of just, you know, smaller government, no regulations, get out of the way of social issues. But this year, I really feel like every single libertarian candidate uh, took time, uh, every single libertarian candidate worked really hard to be the the choice of the Republicans who were uncomfortable with the candidate they had. So like you just mentioned, you have Ted Metz basically being the, the MAGA Republican option and being the big lie supporter, but the uh, libertarian who's running against uh, Herschel Walker and Warnock, uh, Oliver, he sounded very much like a traditional Republican, and he just seemed like he was trying to be like, hey, if you don't like Herschel Walker and you want just a normal Republican, I'm pretty much like that. You should vote for me. Um, and and I just feel like every single libertarian in in these races sort of tried to find that angle um uh that they could be like they they could be the solution to what republican voters concerns were with the actual republican candidate except uh you know the guy running for uh, attorney general cowan he just used that as an opportunity to like hype up his dad and, and the dogs which you know good good for him <laughs> I, I i appreciate that you know he's just like was like i have no chance of winning i'm happy i'm happy to be here <laughs> yeah, I did like the end of his. He basically just did give a go dogs at the end of his thing because he's like, all three of us are graduates of the University of Georgia Law School, which is where my dad was dean for a while. So yeah. I just want to let you guys know that that yeah. was his closing statement. It was. It was beautiful. I loved it. I, I you know, it's just like he he had a shot and he took it. So good for him. Honestly, a lot a lot nicer impact on the debate than the one Shane Hazel had. Um, all right, well, let's jump into Lieutenant Governor here, Luke. And the interesting thing about this race, I think, from the beginning was whether or not Republican Burt Jones, who's a current state senator running for to be the leader of the state Senate and uh, second in line for governor in the lieutenant governor's spot, whether or not his role as a fake elector during the 2020 election would be detrimental to him politically um, he obviously has some legal issues related to that that we can talk about somewhat separately, but he was the one Republican to come through the statewide uh, Republican primaries who 
could be most associated with Donald Trump's attempts to steal the 2020 election in Georgia, in part because he was a participant in at least one small aspect of it. What do you think, Luke, about whether or not the Democrat in this race, Charlie Bailey, has been able to sort of effectively apply that label to Burt Jones and whether or not, you know, that is something that people care about, whether or not, you know, this office is something people care all that much about. I I think that people definitely care in an abstract sense. I just think that there has been so much attention uh, consumed by the senator's race primarily, but, you know, also the governor's race that there's just not a lot of room for other narratives to break through the media. Uh, Cause I, you know, again, I'm someone who enjoys reading about politics and campaigns and I have to look for stories about anything other than uh, Warnock and Walker and Abrams and Kemp. So I think that's the, that's one problem universal to all the down ballot races we've been talking about. And then the second issue is the fake elector stuff right now is a lot of smoke and not a lot of fire for the average person. You have to read very deeply and get past several headlines to actually understand what is going on in that story and the fact that there is still significant legal jeopardy for Burt Jones, but none of it's materialized now, and it, 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 might, it might never materialize. Fannie Willis is doing her investigation. She has a specially set grand jury that is looking into uh, all of these allegations against everyone but Burt Jones now, and I, I think it's just like, that's just such a hard narrative to explain to people in the middle of a campaign. You know, I, I think it'd be very, very different if Fannie Willis had not been uh, prohibitive from continuing to investigate Burt Jones and, you know, pursue potential charges against Burt Jones. And that in, if he had actually been charged with something, I think it would be very, very different. But right now, I mean, this is just in the grand jury room and that's just not a really compelling thing to campaign on, especially when this is not going to be issue one for very many voters. Uh, and, and in this environment, I think it's just hard to get anyone to pay attention to anything else but the economy. And the fact of the matter is that most people think that Brian Kemp has been doing a good job on the economy. He he could not have gotten luckier, I think, and, and this is, helps every Republican up and down the ticket, I think, because he is the, the state party you know, uh, front man, banger lord, you could say, uh, because he sets the tone. Brian Kemp spent all of the pandemic focusing on lives and livelihoods. That's what he talked about all the time. He very clearly in his messaging said, I am going to keep the Georgia economy alive because I think that if we don't, then things are going to be much worse. And so that is my priority is how do we keep Georgia to be in the, you know, all the lines they talk about the number one state to do business and a great place for, you know, growing, growing job, building jobs. Right. And so I think that messaging just has, has given the entire Republican party a brand. And I, I think Kemp sort of got really lucky by focusing so aggressively on the economy that when that is everyone's number one priority, uh, he he kind of already has shown voters is like, well, that's what I care about the most. <laughs> and, and I think I think that has given a lot of benefits to every other Republican running because they, they sort of get, you know, the coattails of that branding from Governor Kemp. And so I, I think the fact that Charlie Bailey wasn't able to effectively convince George voters that he was on team democracy with Brian Kemp and uh Brad Raffensperger and Burt Jones was this crazy Trump guy and he wasn't able to really articulate in a way that caught traction that he wouldn't do anything weird on the economy. And, you know, he kind of just got tacked in with all the other Democrats and just wasn't able to break away because earlier in this race, you and I talked about the opportunities that a Lieutenant Governor had to sort of distinguish themselves from the other 
Democrats running. And I, I think just frankly, like Charlie just decided not to do that. Like that just wasn't his strategy. And we'll see if it works or not. But he he definitely decided to just be another Democrat running rather than trying to really put some distance between him and Stacey and all the other Democrats. And I, I, I you know, it seems like to me it it hasn't worked, at least based on the polls. Well, I think he, you know, earlier in the race, I think he did get asked, I don't remember if it was a media availability or some other forum or something, if there was a, any policy by which he disagreed with Stacey Abrams and he just flat out said no. Um, you know, I don't know that dis- distancing yourself on any particular issue would be the right path. Um, I do think, though, that you you basically are somewhat resigned to whatever the outcome for Democrats is, if you don't find some way to create an individual brand for yourself. And I don't know that in creating your individual brand around a policy disagreement or some sort of value disagreement would have been the right thing. I think that probably creates more problems with you by making you less popular among your, your Democrats, particularly if you decide to create that disagreement with Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket but I do think, you know, the the one really, I think the only statewide candidate that I can think of that has sort of a personal brand and who the race feels a little more personal for is Jen Jordan. And I think it's more so just around her, the way she's approached the legal question and just staked out a very clear position that, you know, Stacey Abrams says that she will repeal the law, the abortion ban, um, and Jen Jordan's, you know, most attached to the idea that it's already unconstitutional. Um, and her expertise as a lawyer, her background as a lawyer, I think gives credibility around that message, even if Republicans disagree. Um, but yeah, I've, I was thinking about that question, Luke, as we think about like, you know, there's just not any sort of like standout uh, individual in any of the down ballot races. And maybe that just in this environment, there was never going to be one because there just isn't really a path. Um, but I don't, you know, is there anything you can think of that like a a Democrat running for one of these down ballot races or running for a state house or state Senate race could have just made their fate all that much different than Democrats overall, or everybody's just kind of in the same boat and it's going to sink or it's going to float one way or the other mostly depending on how people feel about Democrats versus how they feel about any one of these individual candidates. Well, I I think what Democrats had to do in each of their races is look for how they could have taken a strength of their opponent and used it against them. And I, I think Charlie Bailey probably had the best opportunity to do this with the fact that he could have said, I stand with Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. Why didn't you... Jones and just like align himself with them and try to basically pick off the voters who, and I, I mean, I know a lot of them. I know a lot of people who are very anti-Trump. They're generally Republican. And so, you know, basically from 2016 to 2020, they were starting to lean Democrat, but then they've kind of come back to Kemp and Raffensperger very comfortably. I mean, these are the these are the people who we're gonna see vote for Warnock and Kemp. Like these are real voters. They're out there. I know a lot of them. Uh, I know it's anecdotal, but like I've I've encountered a lot of these folks. And I think I think Bailey had the opportunity because of Burt Jones being so aligned with what Trump was doing. If he just really tied himself rather to Abrams and the rest of the Democratic ticket and basically, you know, saying, like, I am a supporter of democracy like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. And, you know, that would have been a very, very unpopular move with a lot of Democrats. But I think it would have been one that he could have gotten some of the voters that, you know, are are uh, Romney Biden voters who you know, that, that, that swingy middle that Georgia's starting to develop, he could have really tried to cultivate that and really tried to discredit Burt Jones in the true moderate Republican independent vein that, you know, that Joe Biden and John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were able to exploit. It would have been very risky. Um, but I, I think that's, a, I, that's about the only way I think any of these candidates could have 
gotten themselves distinguished uh, from the rest of the ticket because the Republicans just did a really good job, I think, of neutralizing some of their potential worst um, candidates and worst messages. Because, for example, the Republican elected insurance commissioner got charged with felonies and, uh, you know, eventually uh, got, excuse me, was suspended by Kemp and Kemp appointed his successor and successor is running now. And that could have been a controversy, but the legislature very quickly and I think very appropriately stand, stood in and, um, you know, uh, we're, we're actually voting on a constitutional amendment to make it. Uh, so that when the governor suspends someone who has been charged with a felony, they don't get paid anymore uh, because the 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 elected Republican actually got paid while he was suspended uh, due to this felony. And so it's like, oh, look, the Republicans did something to deal with that controversy. And then we had the controversy with the un- uh, with the labor commissioner failing to properly deal with unemployment. Uh, insurance claims well he's not running again so the 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 guy who's running now doesn't even have to you know deal with that record because he can say well that wasn't me (laughs) that was that other guy who's not running anymore because he was terrible and so it's just it's just the republicans were able to neutralize so many issues i think i think the whole down ballots had so much trouble um with that and then the other thing, too, and you and I are just as guilty as this as anybody else, is if you were talking to literally anybody in January 2021 or March 2021, it felt like Democrats were on the ascendancy in Georgia, that everything was going our way, uh, Kemp's numbers were in the toilet and only getting worse, and we were going to be able to pull together a progressive ticket that was really diverse and you know, full-throatedly campaigned on the issues we care about because that's what Warnock and Biden and Ossoff had just done and they've won these, you know, super intense, super well-funded, super high-attention races. And it just kind of felt like we were just building up this momentum. And I think the the thing that none of us could have predicted but Democrats have to understand is just going to happen <laughs> every campaign cycle. Cause I've been watching enough campaigns that I just see that this happens is that Democrats need to have an incredibly good economic message an incredibly good crime message just in their back pocket. So if ever those two issues pop up in October <laughs> that you can say something about it, cause I feel like what unfortunately happened to basically every single Democrat campaign, except Warnock Warnock is the one who I think, shows what you're supposed to do in this situation it's just like when the economy went bad they just had no response to that like they have not been able to articulate why even in bad economic times you should trust me a democrat more than a republican and i think that is something that is a big lesson for democrats in georgia is that they just can't take that for granted and think that campaigning against republicans and trying to paint them all as extremists will work because you know frankly that's what every democrat was doing before trump happened and it didn't work and the only time it's really worked is when trump was actively stirring in the georgia electorate a real extremist element that you could easily see and it's just not as effective against brad raffensperger who is and he, I, I would hope he would take this as a compliment, but it's like a boring Republican technocrat. Like he seems like that's the reputation he's trying to get. And I mean, like you, it just doesn't work against him in the same way as it does against Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue when they're out there screaming on the trail about crazy stuff. And Kelly Loeffler saying that, you know, she's to the right of Genghis Khan and just like being wild eyed conservatives. Like they're just running like they are the Republicans this time are just running a very, very different race than Purdue and Loeffler ran. And I think, unfortunately, none of our statewides except Warnock have realized that and have adapted to campaigning in a different way. Um, And I, I just I just think that is the problem is that none of the Democrats were really willing to do anything that would make any other Democrat worried about how they were campaigning and you know they weren't they just it it was just kind of like all of us or none of us and uh, you know it's hard to know if that's the right strategy or not um and then the last thing i'll I'll say too 
that I think illustrates this this issue is that it really does seem that it, you you need the Trump factor or at least the Trump level of extremeness to win as a Democrat in Georgia statewide because everybody forgets that there is a Democrat running for public service commissioner in the runoff in January in 2021, and he did not win. Like, Daniel Blackman is not our public service, our Democratic public service commissioner. And I think it is because that the guy he was running against was not crazy, or at least did not come off to, as crazy to most of the Georgia electorate. And and because of that, it's just a lot harder uh, for, for them to to win, I think, unless the polls are just very, very wrong, which is, you know, again, <laughs> always the disclaimer. That is what Stacey Abrams thinks is happening and that there's this great Democratic wave coming and her and all the other Democratic statewides are going to win uh, because her, you know, her voters are just not being caught. And maybe that is what happened. It, you know, is happening. And then, you know, you and I can do a, a two hour mea culpa and, you know, explain why we're wrong. And all the Democrats are super smart and this was the right strategy. But at least as of this moment, it seems like it was a bad idea for everyone to just sort of campaign on these Republicans are crazy and support Trump and we're not crazy and don't support Trump. And so you should support us like you supported those other Democrats who you are really wary about because the economy sucks. Yeah. It's tough. The other thing I saw this week is that the there's some reports that some of the funding of Get Out the Vote is kind of drying up among progressives um, and that the budgets of a lot of these GOTV organizations are shrinking at the exact wrong time um, when the their, you know, Democrats advantage in, the, you know, you know, you noted about sort of people's general sentiment about Republicans in 2020 and how they kind of got hooked in with um the extremes around Trump and that they've sort of recovered from that. The other sort of big disadvantage Republicans had in 2020 was a really effective ground operation. The Democrats had and Republicans have spent a lot of time and Kemp said this directly. They spent a lot of time learning lessons from Democrats about how to do effective GOTV and focus on that. And so they've invested quite a lot in doing that. And that comes at the same time that in crunch time here, funding is sort of drying up for Democrats on the particularly on the sort of state and local level GOTV that had been funded really heavily in 2020. Um, so it, it, it creates a, a tough, tough environment for Democrats to be uh, victorious in. Um, and, and I think that's also why you see the polls where they are and the sentiment among Democrats where they are uh, a week before the election. Now, you know, we are. Uh, just over a week from election day here as we record on Sunday, October 30th. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all these races will be over. As a reminder, all statewide candidates in Georgia have to get 50% plus one of the vote to win outright in the uh, general election. Otherwise, the top two candidates move on to a runoff. The uh, most recent election bill did move that runoff up into early December as opposed to early January. Luke, what do you think about runoff possibilities to do runoff possibilities add any sort of wild card element for you know increased attention on these races and maybe sort of a second chance for democrats in december um what do you think about uh prospects related to those i the historical trend in georgia is that runoffs are very bad for democrats um we have the most recent but they bucked it last time right exactly and so that that's the question i i, I think honestly it's going to heavily depend on what the national situation is. I think if you are uh, Raphael Warnock, there would be absolutely nothing better for you than Republicans having like 51, 52 seats. And then your race doesn't matter, <laughs> basically, uh, because I, I, you know, to Republicans, I think they're going to stand by Herschel Walker as long as he looks like he is the difference between a majority or not, but the moment that the Republicans have a majority, even if Herschel loses, I think they get a lot less interested in him being a senator. And so I, I think if you're Warnock, that's really what you'd love to see happen. Um, I'm not really sure how how the rest of the races play out. Uh, I, I think it's sort of a similar dynamic, whereas if you're just about anybody but Stacey Abrams, it's probably better if Warnock is in a runoff and you're in a runoff with him and, and it's 
a situation where the control of the Senate is not on the line uh, for this race, because I think Democrats in that situation will be very fired up and wanting to get a win somewhere, whereas Republicans, I mean, they're just not going to be that excited about Herschel, I don't think. Um, National Republicans and all the people who pour in the big money, I, I think I think it'll be a lot easier to treat Herschel like Roy Moore if it doesn't matter. Um, whereas right now when it matters, it's, it's easier for them to stand by him. And, you know, as we've discussed all these races, there's a huge proportion of the electorate, at least based on these polls that are undecided or don't know, or are camping in the libertarian right now. And typically what you see is that people, you know, change their mind and pick one of the two parties when they're in that undecided camp. And then even some of the people who are saying they're going to vote for the libertarian do the same thing. But there's enough right now, there's enough people who are under 50 that we definitely could see runoffs. And I think, I think the Senate one is going to be the most interesting and the only one that Democrats have a real chance of, of winning with uh, based on history. But it, it's hard to tell. Um, the, the 538 forecast has Warnock at 49.3% of the vote. Uh, and you know, that would mean we'd go to a runoff if that was what it actually ended up being. <laughs> so, uh, we, we might say, you know, as, uh, one of Warnock's newest ads, uh, highlights, we, we may be dealing with him during Thanksgiving. <laughs> Which his ad was clever in saying, you don't want to hear from me over Thanksgiving, so go vote for me today. All right. Well, I think we will leave it there until probably after Election Day. Maybe Democrats will prove us wrong and we can do a, a giant postmortem about how we don't know anything. And we've we'll become be just like time. all those other pundits, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we will see you after Election Day. If you haven't yet, uh, go vote. Take advantage of early voting while you can. Um, and if not... Uh, it is worth it to go vote on election day. Um, make sure that your voice is heard in, in this race uh, and in races all the way up and down the ballot uh, here in Georgia. Definitely uh, just want to reiterate what you just said, Cal. Go out there and vote. A lot of people have already voted. Um, we, we have, as of right now on Georgia votes, 1,634,330 voters. And so you should, you should get yourself in that number and be one of our many voters. And if nothing else, uh, that number tells you that the lines on election day might not be that bad because a lot of people have already voted and there's still, you know, uh, this is a, a weirder election in the sense that it is not the first week of November, the, the second week of November. So there's a whole other week of early voting left. So still have a lot of time to go vote, but not, not that much time. So you need to make a plan, figure out how you're going to do it and uh, let your voice be heard. All the cool kids are doing it. All right. We'll leave it there. We'll see you after election day. Take care y'all. Go dogs. Beat Tennessee. Go dogs. Thanks for tuning into peach pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to peach pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week until then. Take care y'all.